Talking History on News Talk. Good evening and welcome. We're Talking History on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, terror during the French Revolution and the fall of Robespierre, the British cabinet minister who was a fraudster and spy and eventually faked his own death, terror during the Irish War of Independence with Joe Connell, a history of the Irish pharmaceutical industry, and we'll end the show looking at the life and afterlife of a Donegal saint. But first, the fall of Robespierre. The day of Nine Thermidor, the 27th of July, 1794, is universally acknowledged as a major turning point in the history of the French Revolution. It ended with Robespierre, an outlaw on the run, wanted for conspiracy against the Republic. He shot himself shortly afterwards and half dead, the guillotine finished him off in grisly fashion the next day. And a new book provides an hour-by-hour analysis of these 24 hours. It's called The Fall of Robespierre, 24 Hours in Revolution. Paris. It's published in hardback by Oxford University Press. The author is Colin Jones. And Colin, thanks so much for joining us tonight. No, not at all. I'm delighted to be here. When we cover books, normally they cover maybe, it might be a biography, it might cover a a major event, it might cover an extended period of history. What's fascinating about this book is, talk to me about your, your, your approach and your decision to to focus on 24 hours. I don't think we've ever covered a book that, that looks at, at a day in such detail. I think it is unusual. And obviously, when I was writing the book, I was looking for other examples. And, I, and quite honestly, they are few and far between. Uh, and actually, they didn't prove to be the model that I was hoping to go for. Because I think if you look at any of them, what you tend to find is people talk a lot about like, the causes of the day, the context, the preconditions and all the rest. And then they sort of go into the aftermath and the consequences and what happened next and everything like that. What I thought I wanted to do was to do a history of a very, very dramatic day. And it was the drama as much as anything that really drew this, drew me to it. But to do it in a way that gave that sort of dayness, you know, dayness. Uh, uh, to it. I mean, earlier in, uh, well, uh, uh, in uh, January the 6th, 2020, there was a good example of that, a day when people felt, wow, what is going on? You know, there's a genuine sort of mystification when one's caught up in a drama and doesn't know what the answer is, where the, where it's going, what the end, where end will be. And I think this was one of the big factors in the uh, the history of this day that I wanted to get across, that, that sense of, of nowness, of, uh, of unexpectedness, and also the, the sense that one possibly, for Parisians in uh, 1794 on this day, would probably have to make a decision on which a lot rested, and that it might include uh, their life uh, resting uh, on the decision they made. So talk to us about this pivotal day and talk to us about Robespierre because things unravel so quickly for him over the course of these 24 hours. What position was he in and why did things go so badly wrong for him? Well, Robespierre was, I mean, he's one of the great uh, fascinating figures of the French Revolution uh, always. Uh, And um, he's someone who is promoted to this position of power by the revolution. Before the revolution, he's a provincial lawyer in northern France, in Arras. Nothing really destined him for any sort of role on the political or national uh, stage. But with the revolution, with the National Assembly elected by people, and the convention of 1793 is elected by universal male suffrage, first time in, in history. He's promoted into uh, the, the sort of cockpit of revolution at a very sort of turbulent and important uh, uh, time. Um, 
And he really is gets his reputation for being the man who speaks boldly uh, about the revolution and why it is a good thing. I mean, if we look at the early speeches of uh, Robespierre in 1789 and onwards, you find him as uh, being the champion of the people, the champion of the popular cause, the champion of freedom of speech, the champion of uh, actually even uh, uh, um, the ending of the ca of ca uh, capital punishment, a very sort of, we would say, a sort of liberal, uh, uh, even liberal radical uh, view. What happens in 1792 to 3 is that France goes to war with uh, the rest of Europe, 1793, including Great, uh, uh, Great Britain. And um, es essentially, he, re that he and others realize that the only way to win this war is to become more radical, more, more socially radical, but also, if necessary, more centralizing and more authoritarian and even using terror, uh, violence against people who step out of line or are seen as uh, enemies of the revolutionary cause in a very dramatic and, uh, we would say, bloodthirsty thirsty way. And he's promoted onto the committee, which is basically running the, the revolution, running the war effort, running the terror in France, the Committee of Public Safety, 12 men are sitting around a, a table every day, sort of in, incredible pressure. Uh, to do this, uh, uh, to, to to win the war, to win uh, win the war against uh, Europe, and Robespierre is the figure on the of the twelve who really um, acts as the mouthpiece for for it, for justifying what it's doing, for justifying the socially radical policies, for justifying uh, a violence. He he makes violence look something which is uh, terror. That uh, makes it look like something which is for the good of humanity, uh, if you like. And he has a very important role in that. What's happened over the year in which he's in power, 1793 to 4, is that he increasingly uh, loses touch, I think, uh, with his other colleagues on the Committee of Public Safety and in a sense loses touch with the National Assembly and maybe even loses touch uh, with the, the rest of uh, uh, France. And yet he's in a position in which he's very difficult to topple and it's only really the circumstances of the previous day and the, and the day itself, Knights of Thermidor, which give an opportunity to really get rid of him and people pick it up. And the book takes us on this hour uh, by hour uh, view of, of what happens and how quickly things go wrong and the grisly end. And I just wonder, how is Robespierre viewed today in France? Is he still a controversial figure? Uh, how do people view the terror and the, the, the huge numbers who, who died at the guillotine? Uh, this is a massively controversial uh, thing still in France. Uh, you know, the revolution is not over in some ways in France. It always were, it seems to divide people very, very uh, strongly. Even academic opinion, which you think is sort of objective and uh, above it all, uh, there's still quite important uh, fault lines over the, the figure of uh, Robespierre. For some people, they see him, you know, particularly in his earlier phase as this champion of uh, popular sovereignty and the champion of, uh, of the revolutionary causes, including, incidentally, the abolition of slavery, I should have uh, uh, added. Uh, and also the man who in 1793 to 4 was willing to put those beliefs uh, in the icebox, if you like, so that France would win the war against uh, uh, the rest of uh, Europe. Other people see him completely differently as essentially a proto-totalitarian tyrant, the man who dominated and uh, dictated to the rest of, uh, of the Committee of Public Safety, the rest of the National Assembly, Paris, France, and everything like that. And they see him, if you like, as, a, as an early example of those sort of dictators that we've got horribly used to 
uh, in the twentieth, uh, twenty-first uh, uh, century. So yes, he's still. It's quite amusingly, it's very, very difficult to find um, a, a street name or anything like that in with Robespierre in it. I mean, there's a famous uh, debate always in Paris that uh, should should they have a Robespierre street or even a metro stop? After all, you lots of the other revolutionaries uh, have their sort of geographic geographically implanted on the on the city there. Robespierre always falls by the uh, wayside. There's now, there is now a, um, um, a metro station, uh, Robespierre, but it's actually just outside Paris, and so Paris doesn't have to w- worry about it. So yes, absolutely, he divides people, and that's one of the sort of fascinations uh, of uh, writing about him. That in a way, one has to sort of try and get one's own take on him. What makes him tick, but also what makes everyone else tick? Why do they find by the end of the day that they really feel they have to get rid of him? Well, the book is a wonderful read as well as a major piece of scholarship. It's called The Fall of Robespierre, 24 Hours in Revolutionary Paris, published in hardback by Oxford University Press. The author is Colin Jones. And Colin, thanks a million for joining us tonight. Not at all, Patrick. Thank you very much. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. In November 1974, British MP and former Cabinet Minister John Stonehouse walked into the sea off a beach in Miami and disappeared, seemingly drowned. Then he was found on the other side of the world in Australia and his extraordinary story began to come to light. And that extraordinary story is explored in a new book, Stonehouse, Cabinet Minister, Fraudster, Spy. It's published in hardback by Robinson. The author is Julian Hayes. And Julian, you're very welcome to the show. Thank you, Patrick. Can you tell our listeners about who John Stonehouse was, uh, his his time as a politician and a minister, just so we get a sense of the events leading up to then uh, this disappearance in 1974? Yes, um, uh, uh, Stonehouse um, was in fact uh, elected into Parliament uh, in the 1950s, the late 1950s. Uh, he was at that particular time the youngest MP sitting in Parliament. And he was uh, obviously elected on behalf of the Labour Party, or the Labour and Cooperative Party. Uh, and uh, when Labour came to power in 1964, he had by that point made quite a name for himself within the party with various stances that he'd taken in relation to uh, the then uh, British uh, colony of Rhodesia uh, that, uh, that had actually uh, expelled him as a result of comments he'd made about the, the racist government there. Um, he uh, was uh, subsequently taken in by Harold Wilson, who was the Prime Minister, uh, into uh, various ministerial posts, junior ministerial posts, both aviation, trade, and so forth. And eventually, uh, in 1968, he achieved uh, a cabinet position as Postmaster General, which is a very important post because uh, it related to... Uh, telecommunications uh, and postal uh, arrangements, obviously, undertaken by the UK. And you have to understand at that time, unlike today, uh, that was a monopoly. It was a state monopoly. Uh, and the licenses were issued by the state. So, uh, you know, uh, television companies, radio stations, and indeed, obviously, the telephone system were all government-controlled. Uh, uh, so yes, it was a very important post, and uh, indeed he was on the uh, in the cabinet and the Privy Council, uh, the Queen's Privy, Privy Council, uh, in order to provide advice to the Queen when required. 
So yes, he, he, he achieved quite a, uh, a rapid rise over a 10-year period. Uh, he was tipped to be a future Labour leader and indeed possible Prime Minister. But um, obviously that never happened. And then you have that incredible disappearance in November 1974. But even more extraordinary then, the the discovery in Australia and the story all starts coming out then. There was a, a long-term affair with his secretary. He was involved in various business disasters and had committed fraud. There was these allegations of him that he was spying for the checks. The, it, it, an incredible unravelling of his, of his life and his reputation. Yes, I mean, you couldn't make it up, to be honest. It's not something that uh, really actually uh, you could make up as a, a fiction. Um, it, uh, it, the, the spying allegations actually had arisen actually whilst he was uh, at the uh, Postmaster General. Uh, there was a Czech defector who had uh, come across in uh, 1969 and had uh, brought information about him and a number of other individuals uh, who he was suggested to be um, working for the uh, Czechoslovak uh, security agency. Uh, and uh, he managed somehow to persuade uh, the security services in the UK that he wasn't actually involved. And, uh, and as a result, uh, they uh, dropped any further investigations. However, Harold Wilson actually uh, had, I think, taken note and had dropped him from the shadow cabinet when the Labour government uh, was actually uh, kicked out and the Conservative government came in in 1970. The shadow cabinet actually that was uh, appointed by Wilson didn't didn't actually contain him. And this was actually, I think, Wilson's idea that he wanted to distance himself from Stonehouse. So that actually had changed so we put it, the trajectory of Stonehouse's um, career and certainly his political ambitions were well and truly uh, washed out as a result of that. Um, he decided to go into business and, and uh, conducted um, obviously a number of businesses involving imports and exports and trying to sell British um, goods and trade uh, across the world. And in particular, uh, there was a, a a bank that he was involved with that had been set up in order to assist the newly formed state of Bangladesh. It was called the British Bangladesh Trust. Uh, that bank ran into difficulties and he used, uh, by various means, uh, fair and dishonest, um, the, uh, the, the businesses in order to shore up the uh, struggling bank. And uh, it uh, was soon the case that he was running into severe financial difficulties. He was facing bankruptcy. He'd been threatened by a number of creditors. Uh, the auditors um, for the various companies were asking very awkward questions. And um, uh, clearly, he was facing uh, the abyss when he decided at that particular point that was enough was enough. And he then, at that point, decided to plan and stage his disappearance. And, you know, when it all unravelled for him then, uh, there was a, a major trial and he, he was convicted. And I think what's interesting is that he himself claimed that he had had a mental breakdown and that was the explanation. You're not convinced by that at all? No, um, clearly he was under severe stress and strain at that particular time. 
anybody who's facing huge debt and lots of questions about their conduct uh, will obviously be suffering a lot of stress. But uh, it, it, uh, it was the manner in which, obviously, it, it was dealt with. He, he claimed it was a little bit more than simply he suffered a breakdown. He claimed that uh, he had a, a split personality and, and uh, he had uh, introduced a, a, a new personality that had actually, was actually the person who was responsible for committing these offences. Um, so he was suggesting that it wasn't him, it was this other uh, dual personality that he had actually had, in fact, manufactured. And uh, he had uh, actually set up these particular identities by approaching uh, the uh, wives of dead constituents who were about the same age as him and obtained information that applied to birth certificates and in one particular uh, circumstance had actually applied and obtained a passport in that particular individual's name. And this had all happened over a period of a number of, well, perhaps the best part of a year prior to his disappearance in November 1974. So to suggest it was a sudden breakdown was, I think, stretching it. Um, and it, in my view, was simply his way of trying to evade uh, the long arm of the law when it came to uh, the criminal process that actually arose. Very good. Well, the book is called Stonehouse, Cabinet Minister, Fraudster, Spy. It's published in hardback by Robinson. The author is Julian Hayes. And we'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History, History on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. If these men ought to be murdered, then the government ought to murder them. It was the business of the government to govern. So said British Field Marshal Henry Wilson during the Irish War of Independence. And a brilliant new book explores the use of terror by all sides during that war. The book is called The Terror War, The Uncomfortable Reality of the War of Independence. It's published in paperback by Eastwood Books and costs €20. And the author is, well, he's been a long-time great friend of the show, Joe Connell, uh, Joseph Connell. And Joe, you're so welcome back to the show. It's so great to have you in studio. Congratulations on the book and before we begin talking about the book I'd just like to ask you how have you been what's it been like in Florida and how difficult has it been completing this book during the pandemic first of all Patrick it's it's an absolute pleasure for me to be back first of all in Ireland and most importantly here in the studio with you it's great to see and I use that word exactly advisedly great to see people in person it has been very difficult over the past couple of years. We, too, in Florida have had lockdowns just as you have had here. We've had businesses closed. Uh, writing the book during this period of time, it's easy when one's at home, but it's very difficult to do the research because one can't get out and go to the libraries, the archives, the things that one really needs. Uh, fortunately, over the years, I built up a great, uh, a great database that I can dip into at any time. But it's just an entirely different kind of a thing. And also being back in Ireland, it's difficult for me to understand the, the different rules in terms of businesses, in terms of seminars and in, in, in lectures. So it's great to be back. And hopefully as we go forward, there'll be more 
person-to-person conduct because that's what we all need for our lives. Definitely, absolutely. Now, the book, as the subtitle says, explores the uncomfortable reality of the War of Independence. And let's talk about that because we're familiar with the actions of the blackened hands and the auxiliaries and the use of terror. But you also have some very interesting material on, you know, what the what the Irish were doing during this period and a very chilling quote from Michael Collins about the careful application of terrorism, that this wasn't just terror on one side. Not at all. And I think if you if you went out to the street and had a Vox Pop uh, interview with the people and just mentioned a World Association, uh, War of Independence and terror, 95% would say black and tans. But the fact of the matter is that the Irish were engaging in some of the very same burnings, murders, and particularly hair shearings that the British were doing to them, them as well. The, the two words there in the subtitle that are so important are both uncomfortable because it is uncomfortable research to be doing, and it sometimes is very uncomfortable reading. But the other word is realities. And in fact, both sides were doing this. Both sides were doing this intentionally. Both sides did it with intent to create a political environment. And it was done mostly for international opinion. And for the most part, the international opinion took a pro-Irish stance. So I think after the 100 years, we're finally learning that some of the things that happened happened equally on both sides. And a very significant policy of, of ostracizing the military, the RIC, and so on. How successful was that policy and what exactly did it mean? Well, first of all, let's take a look at the meaning because I think it's very important. It did not just mean to go to the other side of the street and not talk to the constable. There was a great deal of tit-for-tat kind of thing here. The Irish themselves couldn't associate with the constables or their families. They couldn't sit in the same pew in a church. The men couldn't have a drink in, in the pub. The women couldn't talk to their neighbors. It was declared officially in April of 1919 by de Valera and the Doyle, and the Irish were told not to have any conduct at all with the RIC members or their families. And there was that express or implied or else. If you did, maybe you would be ostracized or maybe your your shop would have been damaged or something. It's very important to note the timing of this. April of 1919, the RIC was ostracized 11 months before the arrival of the Black and Tans. It wasn't just against the the Black and Tans that things were done. It was against the RIC as well. There is a very important gender dimension to these terror campaigns that you write about. Talk to me about how women were terrorized during the war. I think women were terrorized probably even more so than men. There's that very famous scene in the movie, The Wind That Shakes the Barley, when the lady has her hair shorn. And the fact of the matter is both Irish shore women's hair. The British did it as well. And I, I think it's, it's a huge part of the terror that goes along with it. One of, one of the theories of the books, one of the tenets of the book is that trauma of the, the terror lasts far longer than the trauma itself. For the woman who had her hair shorn, the hair grew out, but the trauma didn't stop then. And that trauma went was a very rippling kind of effect. It went to her friends, her neighbors, her social, uh, social conduct. It was very, very important to understand that. Remember, this is on both sides. Uh, an Irish woman who worked as an administrator in the British barracks might have her hair shorn. The 
person who was giving comfort or aid or maybe hiding some of the IRA people had their hair shorn. And to those women who had it, there's no difference. There's no difference in the trauma. There's no difference in the pain. It happened on both sides. And the women definitely suffered terribly from this. And yet, in spite of this terror, we also see women contributing greatly to the war effort involved in in many different ways. Women were absolutely invaluable, not just in supporting the IRA, not just in giving them succor and, and maybe giving them food or giving them shelter, but they carried messages, they carried weapons, they moved throughout the country, they were very involved with with. Uh, intelligence. Molly O'Reilly, for example, was a very young girl. She was only 15 years old in the Rising. She continued her, her activities during the War of Independence. She worked in clubs, getting information, and very often getting weapons from the British officers, and she'd pass those along to uh, to Peter Clancy. Uh, Bridget Lyon Thornton's was a, was a medical student in uh, Galway at the time, and she carried weapons back and forth to Galway and Longford. And it was very important. When she wrote her memoirs, she said whenever she was stopped at a roadblock or on a train, she had recourse to a prayer and a piece of feminine guile. And it's important to understand the women knew what they were doing. They were involved themselves, and they were absolutely invaluable during the period. How would you describe the strategy against the, say, for example, the G Division detectives? And is this a case of selective assassination? Is this a terror campaign? What exactly was happening? One thing that happens in all guerrilla wars, then and now, they're all very similar. They're, they're, they're different, of course, but they're all very similar. This was selective assassination, and that's used, as we very well know, exactly the same way today. Basically, what the IRA wanted to do, what Collins wanted to do, is they wanted to disturb and disrupt the British. One of the things that the United Nations uses as a definition of terrorism is that it disturbs the normal lives and liberties of the people of the period. That's exactly what the assassination of those officers did. It's exactly what the terror throughout the country did. It's exactly what the hair sharing did. That is terrorism by definition. And that brings us to the events of of Bloody Sunday, the 21st of November, 1920. What do we see happening there? Is the morning assassinations, the afternoon reprisals, is that terror on both sides? Well, I contend that it is. The the assassinations started at 9 o'clock in the morning, of course. And by 11 o'clock in the morning, the streets of Dublin were full of cars filled with British officers and their wives, in some instances, trying to gain entrance into Dublin Castle. They were looking for kind of uh, the security that the castle would give them. When we look at terror, again, one of the key things is intimidation and fear. Those officers who weren't home or survived, they were intimidated. They wanted to get into the castle. The other intelligence officers then were structured into the central hotel in downtown uh, uh, Dublin, which eliminated their ability as intelligence officers. I think there was terror in the morning, and certainly without any question there was terror in the afternoon. And I think this illustrates the point of terror on both sides. Is it worse when it's the state involved in it, when you have on one side... Uh, rebels fighting against British rule, but then on the other, you have state-sanctioned terrorism. In some ways, that seems worse, or can you make a a judgment about that? State-sponsored terrorism does, I think, seem worse. At first, there is a contract between the state and the people, just by definition, that the state is there to provide security and help for the people. I'm not sure in the war itself that when you break it down on a more individual basis, that someone who is terrorized by one side or another, that there's much difference. For the lady who shorn by the, her had her hair shorn by the RIC, 
I don't think there's any difference than the lady whose hair was shorn by members that have come on the Mon. When you break it down individually, I'm not sure there's a difference. Certainly conceptually at the outset, you would hope that the British government would not have acted in those, those ways with reprisals. But again, I think it comes down to the individual, what happened, and how the trauma continues for the rest of their lives. Okay, well, Joe, thank you so much for coming into studio to talk to us about your new book. I think it's another really important contribution to our understanding of the revolutionary decade and exploring the uncomfortable reality of the War of Independence, as your subtitle shows. The book is called The Terror War. It's published in paperback by Eastwood Books, cost €20. The author is the one and only Joe Connell. And Joe, well, I just, I'm really excited to see what you're going to do next. Uh, It's always great having you on the show and uh, good health and long life. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me back as always. Be safe and well. Thank you, Patrick. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History History on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. The pandemic has brought home the importance of the pharmaceutical industry and has reminded us of how Ireland is a key manufacturing centre for the global pharmaceutical market. And a new book tells the story of how this came about. The book is called A History of the Irish Pharmaceutical Industry, Making Medicines for the World. It's published in hardback by Four Courts Press. The author is Pat McCarthy. And Pat, you're very welcome to the show tonight. Thank you, Patrick. Thank you. Good to be back. It is a a remarkable story. Can you tell us how this evolution took place? How an industry that really was just a few small firms ended up becoming uh, such a major part of the global story? Well, if I wanted to summarise it, I would say take Glaxo. If you're walking out from town, out towards the Aviva, you pass by Patrick Dunn's hospital, that was, and a big office block beside it, which is currently owned are used by Google. Now, go back 60 years, 1950s. A small factory was built there by Glaxo to service the Irish market, and this was in response to the introduction of tariffs on imported medicines. So Glaxo built this plant to service the Irish market. It prepared about 200 different presentations, different drugs, different dosages, some were tablets, some were oral, etc. It employed 37 people. Now, fast forward 60 years. As I said, the factory is gone, replaced by a Google office block. Glaxo is now part of GlaxoSmithKline, but they still have a manufacturing presence in Ireland. Go down to Dungarvan. You have a plant there manufacturing one product only, paracetamol or Panadol, manufacturing it for the world. Last year, they exported to 73 different countries. They made a total of just over 7 billion tablets, and they employed directly 750 people with another couple of hundred employed indirectly in the town. So small plants supplying Ireland have been replaced by huge plants, part of a world system supplying the world and that's the incredible story it is an incredible Irish success story and it's something I think we should be proud of and of course the coming of Pfizer to Ireland was a huge game changer as well talk to us about that well when the IDA I think it's important to think of where we come where we came from and in 1962 there was a picture painted 
by the Committee of Industrial Organizations set up by Sean Lamass of the Irish industry, various sectors. And in the pharmaceutical manufacturing sector, it identified 28 plants employing a total of 803 people with output that year of 1.3 million pounds. Now, when the IDA started off, it did not target the pharmaceutical industry initially. And there was a slow take-up in, um, in the 1960s. But as you said, the game-changer was Pfizer. And there was an element of serendipity of look with Pfizer. Pfizer were not primarily a pharmaceutical company at the time. They were big into chemicals. And one of their big products was citric acid, which there's huge demand worldwide for soft drinks, for curing steel. It's a huge number of applications. And Pfizer were the world's leading supplier. At the time, they had five very large plants around the world, and they needed a sixth. So they started investigating where they would put the sixth. And they more or less decided to put it on the big site that they had in the sandwich in Kent, which would be very near a huge market for them, the UK. But the year beforehand, Pfizer, as part of their expansion program in chemicals, had bought a company called Quigley Magnesite. Quigley Magnesite at that time was the, the CEO and major shareholder was a man named John Mulcahy, John A. Mulcahy. Born in Dungarvan, he took the Republican side during the Civil War, was interned, after his release couldn't get a job, and still a teenager, he emigrated to the States, studied accountancy at a CUNY at night time, joined Quigley Magnesite, rose to the top. Now, as part of the takeover deal, he joined the Pfizer main board. Now, at his first meeting on the board, the question came up about the citric acid plant, and they all talked about sandwich in Kent. And Mulcahy said, no, Ireland. And no decision was made. Next board meeting, the same kind of discussion. Mulcahy was just saying, no, look at Ireland. And I think almost to keep them quiet, they agreed to look at Ireland. They got into discussions with the IDA, and the rest is history. They built this huge citric acid plant down in Ringeskiddy, and then, critically, they decided to put an organic synthesis plant for the manufacture of bulk pharmaceuticals on the same site. And that was the one that set the example. And in the 1970s, other companies, you think of Eli Lilly, Merck Sharp and Dome, Penn, Janssen, they all followed suit and put bulk manufacturing facilities in Ireland. Pfizer led the field, it has to be said. In terms of the size of their investment, the workforce they created, the added value in their products, that was the model that was created then. And it seemed that we were on a wave in the 1970s. And that's when I started working in the industry, in the 1970s. And it really does bring home how important luck is in any of yeah. these stories. Pat, as a final question, I wonder what do you see as the future of the industry? Because there are some challenges to the sector. And I wonder, I wonder, is it possible to predict how the next number of decades will go? Well, if you take of where we are at the moment, we have an incredible 
network of plants, employing well over 35,000 people directly. Now, the key thing about it is you guarantee the next investment or you make yourself available for the next investment based on the success of the previous investment. Now, all of the investments have been very successful. Building, designing, building, and qualifying and getting approval for a pharmaceutical plant is a five or six year process. So the, if you keep on generating the goods, providing the product, making it, and making it well for the world, then you have every chance of winning the next investment. And as recently as a couple of years ago, uh, Philip Weber, the president of Takeda, when he was opening their new plant out in Grange Castle near the Pfizer plant out there, he made it very clear that the two reasons why he and uh, Takeda were reinvesting in Ireland was the success of their first investment and the quality of the people. That and the infrastructure that has been created around the industry in Ireland makes me very, very confident. And the very fact that earlier this year, earlier um, in 2021, AstraZeneca, one of the very few major players in the international pharmaceutical world that were not in Ireland, announced that they were going to build a plant in Ireland. That is tremendous. The flow keeps coming. And above all, the flow keeps coming to in existing plants. They keep quietly expanding. And bear in mind, you have this infrastructure. So plants have invested, not just in manufacturing, but a lot of them have created service centers as part of globalization so that centralized functions such as finance, HR, regulatory approval, logistics planning. A lot of that is done for many of these companies by dedicated teams here in Ireland. Another aspect of the job creation, of the value adding, and of how the industry is embedded here. So I have to say, looking forward, I'm very confident of the future of the industry here. Well, Pat, the book is called A History of the Irish Pharmaceutical Industry, Making Medicines for the World. It's published in hardback by Four Courts Press. The author, Pat McCarthy. And Pat, congratulations and thanks a million for joining to tell us about it. Thank you, Patrick. Thank you very much. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History, history on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. Adovnon, the ninth abbot of the monastery on Iona, was one of the most significant churchmen and intellectuals of the 7th century. And a new book is the first study to outline the totality of his life and reputation insofar as we know it. The book is called Adovnon, Aunon, Unan, Life and Afterlife of a Donegal Saint. It's published in paperback by Four Courts Press. The author is Brian Lacey. And Brian, you're very welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Patrick, and thanks for talking about the book. Talk to me about the book, because we're dealing with a remarkable man, and we're dealing with, you know, I suppose, when we we have to go back over a thousand years to try and explore what we know, we're dealing with someone who is a a Donegal saint, a significant figure, who was an historian, a lawmaker, a diplomat, a monk, a manager, right? That there was all these different dimensions. How big of a challenge was this for you? Well, it was... (laughs) 
it was a fairly big challenge because I did it during the lockdown and I'm, I live here in the wilds of Donegal. I'm at the foot of Errigal Mountain. So I'm very far away from the libraries um, that have all the, you know, the material about it. And in, into the bargain, the, uh, we don't have Wi-Fi or uh, easy access to the internet here. So all of that was a bit technical. But having said all of that, Adam himself had to live through, to, uh, through two uh, pandemics. And he tells us about those. So I, uh, I had, I had a kind of a model, if you like, in my head. Uh, the man himself had 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 to work through two uh, pandemics. So I was kind of, uh, it was fairly easy, if you like, following on from that. And it's remarkable how much relevance we see uh, in his writings and in his work, including uh, his authorship of the oldest European book about Palestine. Well, I, I'm very interested myself in, in Palestine, and I sometimes say to people, you know, Adam Don wrote two books, one about how to treat innocent people in times of war, and another book about Palestine. So ancient history isn't all that remote and ancient from us as you might think. Why the different names? And you see it also when he's writing about, it's probably his most famous book, writing about his predecessor, Colm Kill. Uh, we very often have this uh, issue of multiple names. Well, it, that's just because the Irish language itself changed. Adamson's an Irish name. Um, it, 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 the root is something like um or um, which probably meant something like fear in the sense of fear of God. He was a kind of a man, if you like, in fear of God. Um, the, the Irish language itself has changed, of course, considerably since he was alive, and and, and sound changes shifted. So that's really what the the difference in in the in the names are. In modern Irish, he's known, and he's the patron of the diocese of Raphoe, where I'm, you know, which takes up most of County Donegal, where I now live, and um, he's known locally as Ounon simplified Ounon in Irish and in English as Unan, and lots of people. Uh, it, it, up around here are called Union and lots of, you know, football teams are St. Adamnons and so on and so forth. Um, it's a common enough name used in this area. Although, having said that, that, while the name is fairly familiar, an awful lot of people don't know very much about the man himself or about his, his achievements. And it's interesting you say that because in his own lifetime and, and afterwards, this was someone who had an extraordinary national, but also an extraordinary international reputation. Indeed, he did. And not only that, but in, the, in, the, in, the, in terms of historiography, he's a really, really important person. Irish, you know, history emerges in the sixth century. And our oldest records come from Iona, the monastery that he was, that he, if you like, ran. And he himself, this was the beginnings of a chronicle that they, the monks on Iona began to write down little details, bits like the headlines of a newspaper, you know, such and such a king died, there was such and such a battle, that sort of very simple. And that Iona chronicle blossomed under Adamnon's own um, abbacy. And in a sense, our oldest, so he, in, in one sense, he would, could be described as one of our oldest historians and one of the people who brings Ireland out of the prehistoric into the historic. And that is a, is a dimension of his work and his life and all that, which I think isn't widely recognised at all. Was he to blame himself for being overshadowed because it was the success of his book on, on his predecessor, Columba, that in a way pushed him into the background? Yeah, he's a kind of a Jonathan Powell character, you know, he's, he's a, he's a sort of a press officer or a publicist for the, the earlier man, Columba, named St. Columba Killer. And, um, 
he, he writes this great book, which is itself a wonderful piece of literature. I mean, you know, in, in seventh century terms, that in itself is remarkable. But he, he sets out to create out of the story of Column Killer, Columba, a, a figure which is if you like on a par with the great saints of the international church. Indeed, some people think that he was trying to, in a sense, raise Columba to the status of the of the scribes and the Pharisees, you know, of the um, the prophets of the Old Testament. But he and he he he, he so he he pushes his older uh, predecessor to the fore. And he himself, if you like, as simply the writer, if you like, fades a little bit into the background. But in his own time, he was a remarkable individual. There's no doubt about that. And as you you pointed out, I mean, he wrote several works which have survived to us, including the the oldest law anywhere, as far as we know, on the planet for the protection of innocence in time of war. And this has been compared. But in fact, there's another book recently by a man called uh, uh, John, uh, uh, James Houlihan, who which dissects that law as a piece of legal history. And he reckons it's on a par with, you know, the United Nations Declaration of the Human Rights, the Geneva Conventions and things like that. And now that is utterly remarkable for somebody from... Uh, Ireland, never mind Dudikov, in the 7th century. He was an extraordinary individual and a, a pioneer in many, many aspects of Irish and indeed international life. Well, the book, I think, succeeds magnificently in bringing that story of this remarkable career to life. So, Brian, congratulations on that. It's called Out of Non, Au Non, Union, Life and Afterlife of a Donegal Saint, published in paperback by Four Courts Press. The author, Brian Lacey. And Brian, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks very much indeed, Patrick. Thank you. And that brings us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to everyone who put tonight's show together, Susan Cattle, my producer, and Peter Malloy on sound. Next week, we'll be looking at the life and legends of Fionn McCool, and we'll be finding out how he became such an iconic figure in Irish mythology. So join us next week on News Talk. We've been talking history. Good night. Talking history, history. on News Talk.